then finally, let's wrap up with key point number three. If we desire hope, we must commit ourselves with great gladness in our obedience to the Word of God. We'll pick back up at verse 13 and we'll read through verse 18, the end of the chapter. Now, on the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. Now, do you see what's happening here? They didn't... Um, what they didn't do is they didn't gather on Tishri 1 to sound the trumpets and say, let's get together and celebrate. They got together because they were like, all right, let's, let's tell Ezra to bring the Bible and let's start studying together. And then the second day they discovered, hey, there's actually some instruction in here for us that we're supposed to be doing this month. There's some things in here that we're supposed to be doing that we're supposed to live out. So they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the mountain and bring olive branches, branches of oil trees and myrtle branches, palm branches and branches of leafy trees, and to make booths as it is written. Verse 16, Then the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths each one on the roof of his house or in their courtyards or the courts of the house of God and in the open square of the water gate and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day, the children of Israel had not done so. And there was very great gladness. And also day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. So when it comes to obedience to God's word... Let me ask you a question. Which of these three words best describes your motivation? Obligation, appreciation, or celebration? Maybe at times it's all three. Maybe, maybe there's different times that it's obligation. Maybe sometimes it's appreciation. Maybe other times it's celebration. But which one is your primary source of motivation for obedience to God's Word? Obligation, appreciation, or celebration? You might even think, does it matter as long as we're obedient to God's Word? Does it really matter what motivates us? Well, when we serve primarily out of obligation, then our obedience has the risk of becoming drudgery. 
When we obey primarily out of appreciation, then, we, then our obedience might, it might become inward focused. And we might become, well, what has he done for me lately? When our obedience primarily flows from a celebration of who he is, then we experience great gladness and joy. Ultimately, here's, here's where I'm going. When we talk about obedience to God's word, obedience to the word of God, what we're talking about is living out our faith. Faith that is based on the word of God. One that will produce joy, that will weather the storms of life. But it's important, just as, just as it's important for us to have a theological definition and understanding of hope, we have to have a good, solid, biblical, theological understanding of faith. So what does that look like? Well, let me share with you three things really quick that can help you understand faith. Three things that are essential. If you, if you cut it down to the irreducible minimum, these three things must be present for us to have the type of faith that the Bible speaks of. The first one is we have to have some knowledge. You can't really have faith in something if you don't know anything about it, right? I mean, it's hard to place my faith in Christ if I don't know who Christ is. It's hard for me to have faith in God's Word if I don't know anything about God's Word. So there has to be, at the very beginning, very fundamental view, theological view of understanding faith, we have to begin with some knowledge. It doesn't have to be exhaustive. It doesn't have to be all-inclusive of everything <laughs> that there can be known about the object of your faith. But you at least have to know something about it. So as, a, as someone who has placed my faith in Christ, what I'm saying is the object of my faith is Christ. And therefore, I have to have some knowledge of who he is. If you're going to have faith in Christ, if you're going to have faith in the promises of God, then you have to have some knowledge of Christ. You have to have some knowledge. If you're going to have faith in the promises of God, then you have to have some knowledge of what the promises of God are, right? I mean, that, that's just very basic. The second aspect to that theological understanding of faith is one of belief and truth. And here's what I mean by that. I can know something about Christ, and I can know something about the promises of his word, but that second aspect is that the object of my faith must be true, and at the same time, I must believe it to be true. Now, our belief doesn't make it true. I can believe that I can stand up here and flap my hands all day and start to fly, but that's not going to make it happen. Uh, even if I have faith that it can happen, it's, I'm not going to start flying because I flap my hands, my arms really hard. Why? Because that would not be true. The object of our faith must be true, and we must believe it to be true. So, we must know something about Christ, the object of our faith. We must know something about the promises of God, if we're going to have faith in his promises. And then we have to recognize those promises have to be true, trustworthy. 
And we recognize and we see that God's word has been proven through time to be true. So some knowledge, the object of our faith must be true, and that's where we place our belief. And then there's a third part. The third part has to do with submission. The idea of this third part of faith is that not only do I know something about Christ or his promises or the word of God, and I place my faith in the true object, this object of faith that's true, I now have to submit myself to it. And this is where action comes into play. I can say that I believe that this chair would hold me up if I sat down in it. I can say I know something about chairs. I have a general knowledge about chairs. And what I know about chairs is that they will hold people up. In fact, I can look around the room and I'm looking at all the people sitting in chairs and I'm going, it's been tested to be proven true. So I have some knowledge. I have looked and seen that it's been tested to be true. But there's only one last, a third part of faith, and it is submission. I have to submit to the object of my faith. The only way for me to have genuine, authentic faith is for me to do what? Submit to the object of my faith. So now I take that knowledge that I have, the fact that I have observed and seen that it is true, and then I submit myself to it. That third actionable step is what we're talking about here. We're talking about living out our faith in such a way that it requires trust, submission, obedience. Look back at verse 17. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day, the children of Israel had not done so. And there was very great gladness. Now let me be clear, because it's not suggesting that the children of Israel had never observed the Feast of Tabernacles, because in fact they did. The emphasis here is they've never observed it with the whole assembly, everybody. Not just the men, not just a few people from each tribe. The whole assembly came. Every person participated. The Feast of Tabernacles didn't have the same pomp and circumstance that the other feasts often got. I mean, when it's Passover time, everybody was looking forward to coming at, at spring, and everybody's looking forward to Passover. But the Feast of Tabernacles, it didn't get quite the attention. But the interesting thing is, it was intended to be and supposed to be the most joyous of those pilgrimage feasts. So here's the point. There is something very exciting, something that is joyful when every single person is saying, we're going to live out our faith. We're going to do this. We're going to live out our faith. We're going to be obedient to the word of God. We're going to follow him with all of our heart.
We're going to understand God's word better. They recognize that in order for them to have faith, that they have to have some knowledge of God's word. But it wasn't enough just for them to have some knowledge. They had to recognize that they had to believe that the promises of God are true. And they've seen it in their own lives, and they've seen that it was tested. And now it comes to this point in the lives of Ezra and Nehemiah and all those others that were mentioned and all of the Levites and all of the rest of the assembly both men and women and all their children are committing to saying we're willing to sit in the chair. We're willing to live out our faith because we have seen the promises of God are true. We have seen that he is faithful to his word. We have seen it again and again and again. And now we're going to submit ourselves to it. One last thought, and then we're going to pray together. God can bring fresh life and hope to his people. He did it then, and he can do it again today. Will it begin with you?